Well, praise the Lord. Uh, we just titled my thought this evening, Let the Church Say Amen. Amen. And I want to talk about the funny things we say. We say all kinds of things. We in the church, we have our own culture and with our own attendant customs and habits. Even our language even is different. And uh, well, while we make these expressions readily and they're so cliche to us and we understand easily what they mean, they can be very confusing to the uninitiated. A few months past this year, we had a gentleman come into the church, a visitor, a young man. He came and he sat through the whole service. I give him credit for that. He sat through the whole service, stayed for the preaching, left after the preaching. He works locally here in the subway store. And I knew I had seen him before, but I just couldn't put it together. And, it, and uh, lo and behold, it turns out that I go quite frequently to that subway on Wednesday night to get a sandwich for my supper before service. And uh, that's where I knew him from. And so I made a point to speak to him following uh, the service and my next visit to Subway and asked him what he thought about it. And uh, one of the things he said was, do you, do you people always dress up like that? Do you always dress like that? You know, and, and it was kind of like it, it was a culture shock for him to come to a place where men dress in ties and suits and a culture shock for me to think that we've come to a time period in America where people expect to go to places like church services that were once treated with some formal, you know, uh, you dressed up when you went to church. And now folks don't dress up to do anything. Uh, they just come as they are. And, uh, well, and there's a point to be made here because why should he have to go buy a suit and a tie just to come to church and to feel comfortable here? And, of course, we're not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable and and this culture shock could actually challenge us to say well from now on pastor's going to show up in a pair of hundred dollar jeans and a nice blazer and a nice uh collarless shirt and i'm just going to do we're just going to be laid back and we're we're going to we're going to blow the wind here and be cool just because we don't want to tell people they you shouldn't feel uncomfortable to come here but but here's the but here's the but if we do that, then we are trading off something that we do out of respect for God in favor of respecting people who don't appreciate the God that we appreciate. So, I don't care whether you wear a suit or tie or not. It doesn't matter to me. You can come just like they do as long as it's modest and holy. But, uh, but you know, the point uh, that I'm trying to make here is that we are by dressing up like this we are we are this is a form of a way of a way that we can say i think a lot of god and i think a lot of him when i go to church and i mean it's in, he's important and worshiping him is important so i'm going to dress up and i'm going to do this funny thing about uh you know i noticed i noticed that uh, recently that young men uh, are all into tying ties and they've got all these kind of weird knots that i never even heard of and uh, they're all into tying these fancy ties. And I thought, well, you know, what brought that on? But I thought at the same time, well, you know, there's a return to wanting to dress formal. So that can't be all bad. That's, that could be a good thing. If they, they got to wear the appropriate clothing if they're going to show off their special tie, tying skills. So, uh, you know, but it isn't all bad. But um, speaking of trying to understand things and how things can, can be confusing. Did you hear the one about the, uh, the Spanish class? Sorry, Brother William. 
I didn't know he was going to be here tonight. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, this Spanish teacher was trying to explain to her class that in Spanish, unlike in English, nouns are either masculine or feminine. They're designated with a masculine or feminine. House, for instance, is considered feminine, la casa. And pencil, however, is masculine, el lapiz. So a student asked, well, what gender is a computer? So instead of giving the answer, the teacher split the class into two groups, a male group and a female group, and asked each group to decide for themselves whether computer should be a masculine or a feminine noun. So each group was asked to give four reasons for whatever they came up with as a recommendation. Should this be a male or a female noun? So the men's group decided that the computer should definitely be of the feminine gender. In other words, la computadora, because, number one, no one but their creator understands their internal logic. Number two, the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to everyone else. Number three, even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for possible later retrieval. And number four, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories for it. But wait a minute, wait a minute, this gets even better. The women's group decided that computers should be masculine, el computador, because, in number one, in order to do anything with them, you have to turn them on. <laughs> Two, uh, they have a lot of data, but they can't think for themselves. <laughs> Three, they're supposed to help you solve problems, but half the time they are the problem. And four, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited a little longer, you could have gotten a better model. <laughs> uh, the old Hank Williams tune said, uh, I saw the light. Hank Williams, as you know, was a country and western singer. Most of you probably don't know this, but he wrote over 800, between eight and 900 songs in his lifetime, in his short lifetime, because he passed away at the age of 29. But of those were uh, about 300 or more of those were gospel tunes. And although he was a country and western singer, and he wrote and sang, I Saw the Light, it was the Christians and the church people and the fundamentalists uh, that really latched a hold of that song and, and fell in love with it and, and, and really kind of almost made a gospel hymn out of it. They adopted that song, and you'll hear it sang in church from time to time. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more sorrow, no more night. Amen. So uh, this great song that he wrote has often been, been the butt of many a disrespectful joke. Did you see the light? You know, you come to work and you've been saved. It's Monday morning. You just got the Holy Ghost. 
and you're shining and, and, and glowing with the light of Jesus in your life and you go to work and, and all of a sudden you don't want to laugh at their jokes anymore and you don't want to be, be engaged in their conversation and their lifestyle anymore and they'll say, did you see the light? Did you see the light? Like that's some weird, funny thing, you know, when we talk about seeing the light. So we have our own language and we have our own way of understanding things that other people do not understand and that we often may take it for granted. And it can get confusing, and it gets confusing even for little children. There was this little girl that asked once, she said, Mommy, she said, uh, did you ever see a cross-eyed bear? Uh, why, why no, Judy, uh, chuckled her mother. Why do you ask? She said, well, she said, in Sunday school uh, this morning, we sang about the cross-eyed bear. I remember being a small boy in my dad's church in Arkansas, and we would be singing, Watching you, watching you, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. Watching you, watching you, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. And I used to get creeped out thinking about this gigantic eyeball. Up there in the sky, <laughs> staring down a little on me in church. I'm fidgeting around in church. <laughs> Amen. So we we kind of we have our own words and we have our own expressions. We speak about the blood of the Lamb. We speak about the Lamb of God. To people who don't know what we're talking about. It may sound like, well, we're a bloody cult or something. I mean, what are these people talking about? All this blood. They're talking about blood all the time. That's kind of creepy, scary. Talking about the blood of the lamb. What is the blood of the lamb? And uh, what is this lamb of God they're talking about? But you see, it's a, it's a language and it's an understanding steeped in the word of God. And from the study of the scriptures, we know that there is a divine plan, the mystery hidden from the ages, but now is revealed to us. That mystery is God in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world to reconcile us. And we know and understand that our lives were forfeit because of our sin, but because we fell on the mercies of Jesus Christ and accepted His life as our sacrifice, that the life of Christ served to atone us, to pardon us, and to give us freedom. And we know that He died so that we might live. And for us, amen, that's more than Veterans Day. That's more than thank you to the fallen soldiers who gave their lives for, for our freedom. That's more, amen, than any human could have ever done to have it saved us because what that means is the mighty God came down to the world that He created and wrapped around Himself a robe of flesh and wore it for 33 and a half years and surrendered it in death upon a cross. Got inside of that and knew what it was like to be one of us. And He did it so that we could be saved and reconciled to Him. When we speak about the blood of the Lamb and the Lamb of God, we're talking about Deep, wonderful things. We speak about the anointing. What is the anointing? Oh, it's that little, it's that stuff they keep in the little bottle up here underneath the, 
uh, the desk that they have. They get it out, you know, and they put it on people and they pray and all of a sudden people fall out and they spin around and that, that, that must be the anointing. We, well, that's the oil we use, but that isn't the anointing. Oil is only symbolic of anointing. But anointing, that is something that we understand that you want not understand. Anyway, I was thinking today of that funeral, uh, no offense please, but you know, uh, your father was not a Pentecostal, he was a Catholic, he had a Catholic funeral and I was listening to the priest and if you've ever, you know, I, I'm sure you're going to go to many Catholic funerals, we're all related to, to people who are Catholic and know people who are Catholic and so they... When they pass, we, we attend and we sit with the families and we go through it. We sit through it and I'm thinking, well, I'm listening to this man talk and it, it is so dull. It is so uninspired. It is so boring. These prayers are not prayers. They're things that he's reading from books. And, and yet he wants to imbue it with a sanctity. He wants, it, you, he wants you to feel like, you know, this is a divine, great connection. And there's just nothing about it that connects us to God, but we know more than anybody else sitting in that room. For all the rest of them who are irreverent, who don't go to church at all, or if they do, maybe once or twice a year, who are not faithful to any church, for them, that is a higher level of life that they live on a daily basis. But for us who know God, for us who've experienced the touch of the Holy Spirit, who know the personal empowering of the Holy Ghost, for us to know who know what it feels like to be caught in the grip of the Spirit's immersion, we've been immersed in it, and it cascades over our senses and it floods our inner being and we feel it and we crave it like a drug addict craves drugs we crave it when we pray God touch me with the anointing give me the anointing give me the power let the power be in the church oh God pour, pour out the Holy Ghost in fullness upon us let us have the anointing it's a word they don't understand but we know what we're talking about when we speak of it. Or we speak of the Shekinah glory. What in the world is that? Shekinah glory. Nothing earthly, that's for sure. The Shekinah glory is something that fell in the Old Testament. And so powerful was this spiritual manifestation that it literally became physical. And it went past the point of not seeing it and feeling it to the point of being able to see it and feel it, to be flooded with it, to have such presence of it that it filled the room. And our chronicles, our histories, our annals are filled with references of people who at times past did not know anything about the Holy Ghost, didn't know anything about the Spirit of God, but they got in a place where the power of God was falling, the anointing was present, and people were doing all the right things that were bringing that anointing together. And they spoke of the Shekinah glory. They spoke of seeing a cloud or a mist hovering in the meeting. Amen. Of seeing it come in and feeling it. Amen. Like a divine cloud empowering that house and filling that house. Amen. There is something about the presence of God. Amen. That can become so real and draw so near. Amen. That it is unavoidable to be able to... to you, you cannot but sense its presence. It is so powerful. The Shekinah glory of the Lord. 
And so we talk about the cross and we talk about Calvary. They're so central to us. But you've got a job of explaining to do with someone who has no background in Christianity. Take somebody that came from China and they were not raised in any kind of a church, but they were raised as communists. They don't believe in God. They don't know God. And they come here and you want to talk to them about Calvary and the cross. And while we just assume that everyone in America must have some at least background knowledge of Christianity and understand that that cross that you see there uh, represents the instrument of death that Christ died on, that Calvary was the place where the cross was planted. When we speak of Calvary and we speak of the cross, we speak of the destiny of the mission of Christ. Amen. And the point being, not so much the wooden instrument itself, not so much the physical location itself, but the fact of it, the very fact of it, is so central to us and everything we believe. But to those who do not know anything about Jesus at all, when you speak of cross and Calvary, you've got to know how to communicate that meaning to them. What does it mean and how can we explain it to people? And the only way you can explain it is to tell the story. You've got to go back to the beginning, just like in the Gospels. You've got to go back to the time Amen, that the angel came and spoke to the Virgin Mary. Blessed art thou, Mary. You've got to go back to the time, amen, when the babe was born and, and wrapped in swaddling clothes and lay in a manger. And the, and the shepherds came from the hillsides to worship him. And the, and the wise men traveled from far bearing gifts. You've got to go back to the story, amen, about the young boy who was conscious of his father's mission and duty and business to the time he became a man and began to perform miracles, outstanding miracles that no one has ever done, spoke words that no one could ever speak, brought revelations that no one could ever bring. You've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it. And it's just the mystery of it. Amen. I, we started a new Bible study with Bob's son, Joshua, last night. And uh, he's just so, what a, what a, what a chap. What a, what a great young guy. So hungry for the Word of God. And uh, we, as we were talking and sharing, and I was talking about how Bible prophecy proves the Bible is true. And I flipped over to the, to the book of Psalms. And I read from the book of Psalms, chapter 22. And in it, in it uh, the first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I said, Who said that before? Who, taught, who ever said that? He had to think a minute, but then I cued him and reminded him. Jesus said those very words on the cross. I said, but if you look down through the, the rest of that psalm, you're going to see in there where he's speaking about my garment was parted in the midst and they cast lots upon my garment and they pierced my hands and my feet. You're going to see those things in Psalm 22. And so when Jesus was actually saying those words on the cross, he didn't just say that by coincidence. That was a quotation of scripture. But not only was a quotation of scripture, it was a key to reveal 
who he was to the humanity that was crucifying him. If they had only known the word and made the connection, they would have realized that what he is saying is, look, I have no control of the fact that you're going to part my garments and cast lots over them. But here you are piercing my hands and my feet, and my heart is is turned to water and, and poured out. My bowels are poured out. He had no control over these things. They were happening to him, and yet they were prophesied in the Bible, and he was telling them who he was. Amen. And, and, and that is the powerful mystery of the word of God that has such power. So today, Bob was telling me earlier, today his son went to work and he works in construction and it's rough there in construction, you know. And he was sharing that with some of the men on the job about how I pointed that out to him. And all day long they were talking to him about that and asking him questions and wanting to know more about it, wanting to know more about it. Oh, hallelujah. You see, you've got to go back to the beginning and you've got to bring it back to the cross and say, this is what we're talking about when we speak of the cross and when we speak of Calvary. We're talking about this story and what a story it is. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> uh, what What is dispensationalism? Or what is the fruit of the Spirit? And what is all this talk about? Sacrifice and offerings. The Bible talks about sacrifice and offerings. Uh, they don't really understand what we're talking about. Sacrifice? Why would anybody sacrifice anything? What would you, what would you want to sacrifice? People are not into sacrificing. They're into getting. They don't come to give. They come to get. They can't imagine going anywhere where they would give away money. They can't imagine that. Unless it was a ticket to a football game or a rock concert or, you know, a a bar or something that they wanted to get some drinks in. They can't imagine going anywhere and giving money. But, you know, they give money all the time to the devil and don't think twice about it. But to give it to God, well, well, I can't even think of that. When we talk about sacrifice and we talk about offerings uh, this is something that we understand it is, it is central uh, to the message of Jesus Christ that unless we take up our cross and bear it uh, unless we live a life of self-sacrifice and service we don't even we can't be his disciples we have to learn to serve and we have to learn to sacrifice and we have to learn to give and we give offerings and there is an offering of praise and there are financial offerings and there's an offering of your time and there's an offering of so many things that we can give to God some things we do we don't even think of it as an offering but it is an offering this is what I'm giving God it's an offering and I distinguish myself by this that I give to the Lord the offerings can be great or small it isn't the amount it's the intent and it is the wherewithal that one has the greatest offering that was ever given aside from Christ on Calvary that we see in the Bible was the little widow woman who didn't have anything but two widow's mites, which were worth nothing. That's all she had. And that's what she gave. She gave everything she had. That is the greatest offering anybody can give, is to give everything you have. If you don't have anything more to give, there's nothing to give. If we gave our life for him, If they came to America and said, we're going to cut your heads off, Christians, because you don't convert. We're going to cut your heads off. And we submitted to that. We would have given everything that we had to give. We would have given the ultimate, the sacrifice of our life. And so so when people do that and we set on the little bit that we're holding on to and say, I don't want to give that to God. What are we really saying about how we feel about God? 
You see, because if he's really what we think he is, if he's really what we say we believe he is, if we, if we really believe that he is who he says he is, nothing that we give him is worth retaining or keeping. He's worth giving it to. He's somebody you want to give it to. Have you ever been around somebody that you just wanted to give them something? You had overwhelming compassion for that person, an overwhelming sense of that person, of their importance or their need or whatever it was, and you just felt like, I don't want to walk away from this person until I give them something. It could be a wealthy person or a famous person that really doesn't need anything that you have, but you want them to have something from you so that they won't forget you. Or it could be somebody that had a great need and you just felt an overwhelming sense of compassion and you dug in back somewhere and you got something that you had and you, and you gave it. You felt so good about giving it. Amen. Offerings. What does this talk about Pentecost? What is, what is Pentecost? What does that mean? Pentecost. It means the 50th. Well, what does it mean? It's, it's 50 days after the Passover. And so when we speak of Pentecost, we understand we're Pentecostals. Most people don't know what Pentecostals are, but they're learning. They're very quickly learning what Pentecostals are. Uh, even the Pope asked one of them to pray for him recently. Please pray for me. He wanted some of that bravery, I'm sure, that her understanding of the Bible caused her to demonstrate and, and exhibit and live. What is meant by the rapture? Rapture, when we... People speak of rapture. They talk about, well, you know, I, I was enraptured. Well, it means caught up. But what are we talking about when we speak of the rapture? And for that matter, what is what is the millennial? What's the millennial? And and for that matter, what is premillennial or postmillennial? I mean, we're, we're, where are we going with all this stuff? What does all that mean? We know the millennial means a thousand, a thousand years. It's a thousand year reign of Christ. And so... Uh, you see how odd it is that we just throw these words around all the time and they're so cliche, they're so a part of our culture, and yet for us they have very deep and very powerful meanings. What is a tabernacle? Or what is an ark? How about one of our all-time favorite words? Hallelujah. Everybody say hallelujah. 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 Say hallelujah. hallelujah. Say in Spanish. Hallelujah. hallelujah. <laughs> Say in Chinese. Hallelujah. hallelujah. <laughs> All right. What does it mean? It means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah specifically is meant to be an ecstatic call to worship. It's found in the later Psalms. Psalms 104 and 105 specifically mention it. And usually it will be associated with public worship, but it also may accompany an individual expression of praise. That word hallelujah conveys a sense of joyous exaltation. And it's used and shared by a community of faith as they gather together in worship. Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And it's found in Revelation 19, which is the only chapter in the New Testament where it is found, and here it is found in connection with the saints 
who are giving praise to God for his triumph over Babylon, over the wicked Babylon. They sing hallelujah to God. Uh, hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. Amen. And it is a universal language praise. It works anywhere on the planet, anywhere you go, any church service that you attend, even if you may not know their native tongue or language or understand anything else that they say, you can add to your, your voice to their corporate gathering of praise by lifting up that word, hallelujah, with them. And it be just as meaningful for you as it is for them. You can agree together anywhere you go in the world. Hallelujah is praise to God. I'm praising God. I'm praising the Lord. So why don't we just praise the Lord? Why don't we just say praise the Lord? Why don't we just say praise the Lord? Well, there you go again. So what does praise mean? What does exalt mean? That's another word we use. Praise and exalt. Praise. Praise is an expression of admiration or appreciation. It is essentially a response to God who meets us through revelation. And that's the key there. God has different ways that he can reveal himself to mankind. He reveals himself to us through his spoken word. He reveals himself to us through the witness of creation. And he can also reveal himself to us in a personal way by directly speaking to us or uh, connecting with us in such a way that we know the, the unusual here. Uh, so what I'm trying to say to you is that for praise to have any value, it has to be connected to revelation. Everybody say revelation. revelation. Have you ever heard anybody do some false flattering or maybe you've done it yourself you know you've you've given praise to somebody that you didn't mean that's called flattery praise flattery is praise they had a flat tire that's why they call it flattery because it's flat it fell flat on the floor it's not real praise. It's false praise. So you would act like you know something that's worth appreciating about somebody. And you would say these words, but your heart's not in it because you really don't appreciate that person. You really don't think highly of them. But yet you want everybody to think you think highly of them. So you say those words. What do we do with God when we, when we give him praise we don't mean? When our heart's not in it. When it is not meaningful. When it has no more value than if we were just simply uttering platitudes or flattery to God. And a lot of the stuff that we call praise and worship is not praise and worship. It isn't praise and worship. It's an exercise in chorale or musicianship or demonstration of talent. But it isn't praise and worship. 
praise depends on a revelation. You cannot utter a praise that has any meaning at all unless you have an understanding of what it is that you want to appreciate. It is admiration and appreciation that is going outward to God, but in order for it to have any meaning, you have to appreciate and have an attitude of admiration. And we don't do that without a personal revelation. So how would it be if when we came to church and we began to do what we called praise, we turned our eyes on Jesus, looked him full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth should grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How would it be if that's what praise meant to us? Oh. Woo! I feel it. I feel it. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, let's give God a hand praise. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. So it is essentially a response to God who meets us through revelation. And the appropriate response to God's self-revelation is not only faith in God, but praise to God. And it may be expressed privately in prayer or it may be expressed in public worship, but by it we are reflecting back to God what he has revealed of himself to us. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, and, and, and this, this really could revolutionize everything for us. If, if you could get it, I'm just sensing you're not really getting this. It's not really coming home to you. You're thinking, you mean, I really got to change my way here? <laughs> I have to change my approach. I got to change what I thought I've been doing was right all the time. I've been making all this joyful noise a lot of that is just clanging brass and tinkling cymbals. A lot of that joyful noise we're making is clanging brass and tinkling cymbals because we don't love one another. And how can we say we love him when we don't love one another and we don't have unity? Hallelujah. Amen. And we're not connecting to the Lord. We're just showing other people that I'm participating in what everybody else is participating in. But, oh, if we could get inside of this moment and understand. Hallelujah. Lord, I'm looking at you. I'm seeing you. You're here. I feel you. I'm praising you. I'm thanking you. I'm admiring you for real. This is not flat praise. This is real praise. Hallelujah. This is real admiration. And I'm expressing what I think. You've just revealed yourself to me. Wow, God, you're great. You're powerful. You are awesome. You are awesome. Amen. You see, praise cannot be real until you believe in it. You don't praise anybody. If you don't really mean it, it's just praise with a flat tire, flattery, unless you really meant it. And do you know how hard it is to really praise anybody? Have you ever noticed how hard that is? For most of us, how difficult it is to genuinely give somebody a word of admiration and praise. How hard it is for most of us. Gen to genuinely do it, it's like, oh, God, I have to give something away. 
have to give something away? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There are many excellent models of praise recorded in the Psalms. And Psalm 145 demonstrates many of the characteristics of praise in this psalm. We see that the praise is addressed to God. It's something that we're speaking to God. And uh, it's something that uh, also contemplates his work and his character. When we speak the praise to God, we are speaking about his work. We're speaking about his character. We're admiring these things about him. It's also something that blesses God and blesses his name. Names are important. They are very important. When you speak the name of something, you have power over that something. You have power, you have authority with that something that you speak that name. Okay? And then by doing so, <clears throat> uh, praise not only ascribes worth to God, but it also deepens our innermost sense of what he means to us. So by speaking those words of praise, we are giving value and worth to God, and we are reinforcing how we feel about him. We are making that statement to ourselves as well that this is what I really think about God. Now, if, if we could really see God in here, think about the difference it would make in, in the impression you would want to make on him personally. If he could be sitting over there somewhere and you could focus your attention. Have you ever, been, have you ever seen people around somebody who's famous? And, you know, you want to get close to that person. You want to make an impression on that person. You want to distinguish yourself to that person so that they notice you and pay attention to you and remember you. You want to get in there with that person and make sure that they connect with you. And how hard you will try to do that. Uh, you will try so hard to be sure that, that they saw you, that they noticed you. Uh, but if he could be right here, we could see him. How we would gather around him. How we would hem him in and crowd him and press into him shoulder to shoulder so that it would be hard to even squeeze between our legs to get to him. We'd all be reaching for him, trying to touch him like, like uh, sycophants do of their favorite rock stars or sports stars or movie stars reaching in trying to touch him, trying to connect with him. If we could really see him, we would be pushing it out there. Oh, hallelujah, I, I want to connect with you. And when we do that, that deepens our innermost sense of who he is and what we feel about him. So you can see, I think already, as we strip back what praise really is, and compare it to what we've been giving him all this time, that we haven't been doing very much, have we? We have not really been doing very much. We make a lot of noise, but we really have not touched him. But what if we did? What if we did? What if 51% of us did in any given service? Can you imagine what that service would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like? Now, we do have some that praise and worship. There, there, there are, there's a few among us that pour it out. They pour it out. They pour it out. And you would think others would catch on and, and follow and emulate that example, but they just don't seem to do it. Maybe we will do better if we understand that we are lacking here in a way. 
We speak of exalt the name of Jesus. Exaltation. Exaltation. What is that? Well, it's a higher, perhaps an attempt even to be the highest form of praise. When we think of praise and when we think of exalting him, praise is already lifting him up, but exalting him is praise on steroids. Exalting God is praise on steroids. Do we have any praisers on steroids in the church? I mean, do we have anybody who's just so roidal in their praise and worship? We do have a few people, I think, that, that praise the Lord that way. But what about if, if we did? What about if the next time we gather together for a worship service, we got that praise going on? We got it going on. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Ah, praise on steroids. Woo, hallelujah. I'm shouting all over the house. Woo, ah, ah, I'm praising God. I ain't just praising Him. You all can praise Him if you want. I didn't come here just to praise Him. I came here to exalt him. I got to exalt him. Y'all can stay down there with your little praise, but I'm going to get mine a little higher than everybody else. Hallelujah! I'm exalting him. Oh, let's give God a hand, praise. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! We say, we say, give God glory. What do we mean when we say give God glory? Well, the glory of God speaks to the manifestation of His essential character or qualities. The glory of God is the brightness or the visible splendor of God. And uh, when we speak of the glory of men, we're referring to their power or their reputation or their importance. But when we speak of the glory of God, it is something altogether different. The King James Version renders 25 Hebrew words with the English word glory. So that means there's a subtlety of meaning, an overlapping of meaning there. <clears throat> but the basic uh, Hebrew word or term for glory in the Old Testament is chavot. Chavot. Which means heavy or weighty. I was discussing the other day, last uh, Friday, with Sister Kelly up at Whitehall, and we were talking about uh, the glory of God, and we were talking about things like this. I noticed this past summer, uh, I noticed something that helped me to understood barometric pressure. Anybody know what a barometer is? Anybody have a barometer? Uh, you know, it's that little glass tube that you hang up there, and and it tells you what the barometric pressure is. Well, what does the barometric what, what Why do you know what the barometric pressure is? Just tell me the temperature. I don't care about the barometric pressure. Well, if you've got sinus problems, you might care about the barometric pressure. But I noticed that uh, our hummingbird feeder, I'd put the juice in it, you know, and it'd be on the porch. And in the morning, you could see it up there in the glass. I'd put a half a cup of it in there. You could see it up there. And in the evening, you could see it up there, but in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the summer, you couldn't see any of the liquid at all. It'd be down inside the cup. 
where does all that go? I mean, it, it, just, it went away, and then it comes back, and it went away. It's going up and down and up and down. Why is it going up and down? How many of you ever noticed in the summertime that in the morning and in the evening you feel the perkiest, you feel the most energy, but in the middle of the day when it's hot and humid, you just feel like, oh, I don't have any energy. I don't have any energy. I don't have any energy. You ever notice that? But in the morning you got energy. It isn't just a coffee. In the evening, when things cool off, you get your, your, get your, your mojo back. But in the middle of the daytime, you just got nothing. Have you ever noticed that? I've noticed that. Well, here's what it is. <clears throat> Our bodies are 70% liquid, and, and we respond to the pressure in the atmosphere, just like the liquid in that jar responds to the pressure in the atmosphere. The liquid in your body is feeling that weight and that pressure, that barometric pressure is dropping. There is a system dropping down on us, and it's pushing down on the earth, and it's pushing down on you. And, uh, and, and sensitive mechanics or measurements can sense it. Even our body senses it, but we just don't really understand until we've got a metric system out there to evaluate and measure it, really what's happening to us. If you've ever been around evil, real evil, it has a similar effect it has a weight to it. There is a suffocating presence or pressure. I first noticed it traveling back and forth in and out of the state of New York. And if I'd go south, uh, I, I, I'd feel light. i just feel light. I'd feel good. As soon as I cross the state line, whoa. It's just like something heavy just setting on me, just setting on me, setting on my chest. I noticed it when I was preaching in Chicago as a young evangelist. I'd preach a great service, a great revival, and I drove south out of Chicago and into southern Illinois. By the time I got a half hour out of Chicago, an hour out of Chicago, I was just feeling it go lift off of me, just feeling it lift off of me. Around these big cities, there's such dark, evil presences, uh, pressure of spirits, pressure of spirits. And when uh, it is a sure sign of a demonic presence in our lives, when we feel this pressure on us that wants to suffocate us and drain us of energy and just take away our strength and make us feel weak and make us feel like we can't do anything or we don't want to do anything or we're just defeated or we're discouraged or we're depressed. And it's pressure, but it's a bad pressure. But God's pressure, God's glory has weight as well. And it is heavy. When the presence of God, when the glory of God comes into a room and the manifestation of that glory is there, there is a weight to it. There is a pressure. It is weighty. Another word that we might use to describe God's glory is gravitas. Gravitas, which means that carries weight. That's important. And it's not bad. It's not negative. It's, it's, it's a good feeling. But what, what this is a weight that brings awesome respect for it. It doesn't suck the life out of you, but it causes you to have an awesome respect and fear, uh, an appropriate fear of it. The kind of fear that says we need to walk softly before the Lord. That means just be respectful because His presence is so powerful and so real in our midst. God's glory is sometimes given up in a visible form as is the pillar of fire on Mount Sinai or the cloud on, in Solomon's temple. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. Moses saw the glory of the Lord. Elijah saw the, 
uh, glory of the Lord. And uh, there, uh, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord. There's, uh, there's, there's just one adequate response to the glory of the Lord, and that is worship. When it comes, it bears with it the kind of pressure that pushes us into that place of humility and repentance and supplication and demands that we worship Him, the glory of the glory. So if we say, oh, glory in the service, amen, we're looking for that weight, we're looking for that gravitas, we're looking for that manifestation of God's presence. In the New Testament, God's glory, or doxa, doxa is displayed in in his manifestation of himself in Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord was revealed in the body of Jesus, in the man of Jesus. And there was a moment when on the Mount of Transfiguration that glory shone through him and that the disciples that were there saw the glory, saw him shining white with the glory of the Lord. It just leaked out of him. It became so transparent. They were so into the presence of the Lord. So we, these are things that mean something to the world, to the uninitiated. They're just words, but to us they're deep powerful concepts and precepts that that mean things and that we need to know what they mean. And we need to have an appreciation for what they mean. Because when we understand what they mean and we come here and look for those meanings to be transmitted into our midst, it can change our life. Oh, hallelujah. Let's give him a hand praise. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's what sin does. It robs us of the glory of God. We can't get it when there's sin in our life. You can't enter it when there's sin in your life. You know good and well it won't do any good. You can't get close to that glory. But Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 that we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. He is changing us. That old nature that causes us to sin. We were born in sin. That sin that happened in our lives. Amen. He's changing us with ever increasing glory. The more we are transformed into His likeness, the more glory we can expect to see. The more we can get it together in our life, the more we can live a holy life, the more we can expect to have the glory of God revealed in us. Can we give Him a hand praise right now? Thank you, Jesus. Here's another word. Selah. Everybody say Selah. Selah. I love that one. Selah is a liturgical or a musical notation that's found 71 times in the Psalms and three times in the book of Habakkuk. Its exact meaning is uncertain and it can mean multiple things, but most likely Selah was a liturgical note calling for worshipers to lift up their voices or their hands, uh, and uh, to to make more noise. It was it was it could be used in this way, Selah, which means pause and let it out. Pause and let out a big one. Oh, hallelujah! Pause and lift up his name. Music get louder. Singers get louder. Selah, Selah. It could be used in that way. But it also could be used in the exact opposite way, which means to fall silent and think calmly about that. 
pause and reflect on the glory of the Lord and on the meaning of that. It may also be used as a musical notation, calling for more volume from the singers and from the orchestra. And finally, it can be used as a cry like, Hallelujah! Or Amen! Selah! Selah! We, we're used to Hallelujah, but we don't know what to do with Selah. We don't even know what to do with Selah. But now, do you know what to do with Selah? Hallelujah! Do you know what to do with it? Ah, depends on the mood. Amen. The mood may call for that. Turn up the volume and make it louder. Or the mood may say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's about to speak to us. We need to be silent and quiet before the Lord and let the Spirit move. That's a sailor moment. Woo! It's good stuff, right? <laughs> One of the last of our strange words is found in 1 Corinthians 16 and 22. If any man not, love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be Anathema Maranatha. A strange words. Anathema Maranatha. Anathema is translated curse. It's a curse. It's a term rooted in the Old Testament in the view of the Old Testament that the sacred objects of pagan religions are worthy only of complete destruction. When we say something is anathema, it has no value but utter destruction. Utterly rejected. Totally useless. That is anathema to me. When we speak the word Maranatha, it is from two Syriac words combined together, meaning the Lord cometh, or when the Lord cometh. So what he is saying is if we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be utterly cursed when the Lord comes. How can you have a Christian in the church that not love the Lord Jesus Christ? If anybody not love, love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be utterly cursed. Well, that goes right in line with those same people that give flat praise to God. False praise, false worship comes from a false love and a false heart and a false concept. Well, I don't want to be utterly cursed when he comes. How about you? Finally, we go on to the final, and it is the final word. Let the church say, Amen. Let the church say, Amen. Y'all are getting thankful because I'm about to say amen tonight. <laughs> Somebody said, I like it when your son preaches. <laughs> or oh, Brother Andrew, when he preaches, I like it better. But uh, Hallelujah. I'm almost done. Amen means so be it. So be it. Let's stand together. We're closing. Let the church say amen. 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 The saint of God can say with confidence, Amen, so be it. We can speak it with confidence to everything. To everything. Because when we believe God and we walk with the Lord and we have this knowledge of God, this is a word that we speak who see God's hand in everything and everything in God's hand. It's the kind of word that we can say out of the confidence of our relationship with him 
and our walk with him and our understanding. I say so be it to this. I say so be it to that. I say so be it to that. Somebody may say so what? Somebody might say something else. But I say so be it. So be it. So be it. Let it be. Let it be. Amen. 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 And in him is yea. And in him is amen. In him. The scripture said. Everybody said yay. Yay. And amen. Yay means yes. And so be it means it will be. So in him. Hallelujah. Let the church say. Let the church say. Let the church say. Woo, hallelujah. Glory, glory, glory to God. Hallelujah. I praise you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. So be it. So. So be it. So be it. So be it. So be it. Hallelujah. We give you thanks and praise tonight. You're the great and mighty God. I want you just in closing tonight to walk around and shake at least three people's hands and shake their hand and give them a big amen. A big amen. So be it. So be it. Whatever is going on in your life, amen, the hand of God is in it, and it is in God's hands. So be it. So be it. Hallelujah. I have confidence. I have confidence. So be it. So be it.